This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. A former United States president arrested for a felony for the first time in American history. Shots fired, rockets fired between Israelis and Palestinians. Nations disconnecting from the United States. And is Vladimir Putin actually paranoid? And is he actually in Bible prophecy? This and more on Trumpet Hour Week in Review. Good afternoon and welcome to the end of the week edition of Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice. Our four writers from thetrumpet.com are at the ready. We have three of them here in the studio and one in Edstone, England with papers and highlighters aplenty, keeping keeping an eye on the week and ready to give you an update. Uh, here in the studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. Andrew Miller. Hello. Rufaro Manyepa. Hello. And in England, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. Mr. Miller, you're watching the Anglo-America region. What are the main headlines there and what is the main headline that our listeners need to know about? Yeah, definitely a busy week in the Anglo-American region. Uh, Americans continue to uh, flee the big cities for the suburbs and the countrysides as uh, as crime levels in uh, Chicago and New York and other huge metropolitan areas increases. Uh, Democrats are still uh, trying to raise the debt ceiling above $31.4 trillion uh, and meeting some pretty staunch resistance from Republicans and their attempts to do that this week. Uh, And we finally got official confirmation that the spy balloon that Joe Biden let flow all the way over North America earlier this year before shooting it down was surveying sensitive American military sites and transmitting that information information back to uh, Beijing in real time. So he shot it down after it completed its mission. So what's the main story from Anglo-America to look at this week? The main story everyone's talking about is uh, President Donald Trump's indictment and arraignment. And uh, uh, this is really a pretty (laughs) dark day or, or I guess dark week. It took several days for America. Um, uh, several political analysts uh, are are using a comparison I know uh, that you love so much and saying that America's a banana republic, uh, although it's actually almost kind of humorous. It wasn't so sad because the president of El Salvador, which was once an actual the original banana republic, came out and um, uh, this is what he. This is what he said. He said, think what you want about former President Trump and the reasons he's being indicted, but just imagine if this happened in any other country where the government's arrested the main opposition candidate. The United States' ability to use democracy as foreign policy is now gone. And so you you know things bad when the, the presidents of the former banana republics are using America as their byword for how corrupt uh, a nation can get. But uh, we'll unpack this because there, there is uh, quite a bit of detail you need to know about um, even going back to the <laughs> uh, indictment, which happened last week. The arraignment happened Tuesday, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I, I actually have the, uh, the unsealed indictment in front of me, uh, 16 pages um, 
uh, that's supposed to be counting 34 felonies. <laughs> and it's really shocking is that you get to the, the first felony and it says, okay, falsifying business records in the first degree in violation of penal law 175.1. Now, penal law 175.1 just says um, that it's a felony to falsify business records in the first degree if that falsification helps you uh, cover up the fact that you falsified business records in the second degree. But nowhere in the next 16 pages does it cite any law or any statute of how he falsified business records in the second degree. So he's never told us. They've never actually told us. See, they said, it's like, oh, his, this falsification of business records is to cover up another falsification of business records. That is not in the indictment, which is a big omission uh, and definitely raises some red flags about uh, <laughs> the legitimacy of this indictment. Maybe even more shocking than that is as you go through the next, that's the, that's the first, that's the first felony, the next 33 of them, they're basically copy and pasted of the first felony. I think the, the way they did this is because they're claiming that President Trump mislabeled hush money as legal fees. That's supposed to be the falsification of business records. But the hush money was paid out in 11 installments involving three different people. So 1 times 11 is 11, and 11 times 3 is 33. So 33 of the 34 indictments are charging you with a separate felony for every installment to every person involved in the first falsification of business records to the second degree that they never told us about and so i think even the c even the cnn journalist uh, who are not known for their high journalistic integrity uh, i mean you, you could just see almost see the sadness in their faces that they wanted trump to be indicted so bad and then they're like this is it it's like you, you you've copied and pasted 34 times one misdemeanor in the second degree and then didn't even cite the law that the misdemeanor in the second degree uh, was because if you did um, that particular misdemeanor if it's the one I think they're probably going to charge him with has a three-year statute of limitations and this happened like five years ago so of all the things that you would think that uh, the left would have to to get Donald Trump on uh, this one seems to be possibly the weakest possible charge to actually follow through with and arraign and arrest the former president of the United States for. Yeah, it's just about the, yeah, because this is the only the second time in U.S. history a president has been arrested. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant got pulled over for driving his horse and buggy too fast through town. Uh, and the first time a president's been like indicted, it's not a felony to um, drive your buggy too fast through town. It's a misdemeanor. So it's the first time a president's been indicted. And President Trump, I mean, there's a bunch of fanfare on Monday where you, the, like the media literally had uh, people on him as he like left his house in Mar-a-Lago, drove to the airport in Florida, tracked his plane across New York, watched him go into Trump Tower on Monday night. Uh, were there first thing in the morning when he woke up to see him go out of Trump Tower uh, all the way to the courthouse uh, in which he basically spent like five minutes in court just to 
utter the phrase not guilty uh, and now i guess they're pushing to have a trial he went in january probably that's probably has been specifically coincided because that's about when the primary season starts so he'll be in he'll be going through the trial process at the same time he's going through the process to become the official republican nominee uh, and then, uh, and then after he uttered his not guilty, uh, phrase, they couldn't get that on camera. They didn't let the cameras in court. So they had to use court transcripts, but they had the cameras right as soon as he left out and tracked him all the way back to, uh, Mar-a-Lago. And then finally, finally, when he got to Mar-a-Lago, they started giving him some privacy, um, when he decided to address the nation he, he actually addressed the nation he gave a clip there we found it it wasn't necessarily easy because that's the only thing he did this week that's not being published on every major news media outlet but uh we'll, we'll play that and let you uh <laughs> and let you hear what the media doesn't want you to hear and i never thought anything like this could happen in america never thought it could happen the only crime that I have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it. From the beginning, the Democrats spied on my campaign. Remember that? They attacked me with an onslaught of fraudulent investigations. Russia, Russia, Russia. Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Impeachment hoax number one. Impeachment hoax number two, the illegal and unconstitutional raid on Mar-a-Lago, right here. The lying to the FISA courts, the FBI and DOJ relentlessly pursuing Republicans, the unconstitutional changes to election laws by not getting approvals from state legislators, the millions of votes illegally stuffed into ballot boxes and all caught on government cameras. And just recently, the FBI and DOJ in collusion with Twitter and Facebook in order not to say anything bad about the Hunter Biden laptop, which exposes the Biden family as criminals and which, according to the pollsters, would have made a 17-point difference in the election result. So that was President Trump speaking from Mar-a-Lago on Tuesday after he became the first president in American history to be indicted and arrested and entered his plea not guilty. Uh, give us a sense of this moment in American history, its importance, and the waters that we are now entering. Yeah, like I said, it is a really dark day for uh, American history. I think I mentioned briefly in last week's program about Nancy Pelosi's comment that, well, Trump's going to have a chance to prove himself innocent uh, in court, even though America was founded on the, the principle that you're going to be able to prove yourself. The, the prosecution has to prove yourself guilty. Uh, and so you are definitely moving into an area where uh, an era of the country's history where they're using these weaponized state agencies to basically prosecute uh, mainly Donald Trump, but really anybody who stands up against what the radical left's uh, trying uh, to do. Uh, th that's why so many of the news analysts are <laughs> throwing around the term banana republic is because um, 
there's obviously some differences between the United States and the the banana republics in Central America. But one thing they were famous for, and actually that corrupt Latin American countries are still famous for, um, is prosecuting the political opposition. You've got people who, uh, in Brazil and other places, who try to run for president for life, not because they're that power hungry, but because the minute they step out of office, uh, they lose their immunity and they're going to they're going to jail. Um, in many of those cases, they act, probably did actually commit some crimes with it. So worthy of that, but not always. And so you're getting into that point in America where like the rule of law is gone, and it's just one political party against uh, against another. President Trump gave a good rundown of saying this, like, this isn't the first time they've decided to come after him. I mean, you have the Russiagate hoax and the the first sham impeachment and then the second sham impeachment and uh, the Hunter Biden laptop. And the, the list just goes on and on and on. Uh, and many of those scandals are, are covered in our editor-in-chief, Mr. Joe Floyd's book, uh, America Under Attack, which is uh, really about, he makes a big point in that book, um, about like the the devil attacking America and even really pinpoints the date when that started to uh started to happen talking about like Satan being cast down from heaven in 1986 uh and then the year afterward 1987 um that's when they really started uh and Joe Biden was involved in this uh attacking um Justice Bork uh, Justice Robert Bork, who was a constitutional originalist, and uh, Mr. Flory kind of points to that moment, uh, 1987, as like I said, when the, the tide began to turn and this, this like trend towards lawlessness in America started to get worse. Uh, and now it's progressed all the way to the point that this lawless spirit, this lawless trend, to where if we actually have like a, a president who's standing up for the law, uh, they'll indict him on 34 felonies, even if. Uh, 33 of the felonies are copied and pasted versions of the first one, and the first one doesn't even tell you what law he broke. That's America Under Attack at thetrumpet.com slash literature. The updated version of that, the most recent updated version of America Under Attack, is at the printer right now. Uh, I believe it says a hardbound version, so request uh, America Under Attack at thetrumpet.com slash literature. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Miller. Rufaro Manyepa has been watching the Middle East. Uh, what's going on in the Middle East, Mr. Manyepa? Yeah, Mihailo spoke about this a little bit last week, and there have been some developments. Um, last week, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu said that he was going to fire uh, Yoav Gallant, the defense minister. Uh, this week, it came out uh, that he was going to delay that dismissal. Uh, he just cited a lot of the, the, the security concerns in the country. Initially, uh, it was because of his insubordination. You know, he was opposing uh, Mr. Netanyahu's uh, controversial judicial overhaul plan. Um, but now this week, it, it, it came out that he wasn't going to fire him. And he's, uh, <laughs> Netanyahu has come under fire for that now as well. People are saying, you know, make a decision. Either you're going to fire him or you're not. You know, what's going on? And, and he's he's been having a, a pretty bad time. But it turns out he was right. The security situation is pretty tense in Israel right now over uh, Passover, which the, the, the Jews observed on Wednesday. There were some serious uh, riots and, and clashes with the police by Palestinians. You hear the, the 
anti-Israeli media, which is most of the media, to be honest, uh, talk about it. They say that uh, it was a matter of uh, these policemen attacking these Palestinian worshippers who were in the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, You look into it, turns out these quote-unquote worshippers, they had sticks, fireworks, and stones within a small enclosed space of the mosque. Uh, are you really worshipping with those with those things with you there? No. They intentionally, uh, under the guise of worshipping, saying that it's Ramadan, they went into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, they barricaded themselves in there because they knew that on Wednesday, this is when the Jews are observing Passover, and they wanted to disrupt that. The Israeli police come and they forcefully take them out, and then there's all this violence. And what this did in turn was it instigated the rest of what happened this week in Israel. Cell phone footage appears to show Israeli riot police pummeling worshippers with batons, firing stun grenades and rubber bullets after storming the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Israeli police say they launched the pre-dawn raid after what they called agitators barricaded themselves inside. Releasing this body cam video, they say, shows officers coming under attack from fireworks as they tried to clear the mosque. They attacked us in there, one worshiper shouts. All the young people inside are suffering and no one is helping them. There was now a lot of talk from Hamas about how uh, abusive and how uh, dangerous Israel is, uh, evidenced by these attacks on the riot police. And so what did, what did Hamas do? They fired rockets into Israel for the rest of the week. Um, I think it was starting on Wednesday, they fired 16 rockets into Israel. On Thursday, they fired in 34 rockets into Israel. That's the biggest barrage uh, since 2006. Uh, and then uh, in the early hours of uh, this morning, which was several hours ago in Israel, but they sent in another nine rockets into Israel. So it, it has been a really tense situation in, in Israel this week and, and quite a lot of violence going on. So finally, the Israeli Defense Forces, they struck back. And that was only this morning when they did that. And they, they sent in rockets specifically to Hamas sites in the Gaza Strip and in Lebanon in response to all of these all of these attacks that were going on. Hamas comes out and, and, and they condemned these strikes, despite the fact that they're the ones who instigated all of this, you know, from, from the start with these quote-unquote worshippers um, uh, and being violent with the, with the fireworks and the sticks and the stones. They came out and they said, they said that these strikes, these strikes in response by Israel, quote, reflect the brutality of the leadership of the fascist occupation of Israel and its policies that threaten security and peace in the region by violating the sovereignty of brotherly Arab countries and the sanctity of Islamic and Christian sanctities, foremost of which is the blessed Al-Aqsa Mosque, end quote. And the West just eats this kind of language up you know they they hear them come out and and so many so many times like israel is the villain and israel is vilified and hamas went on to say that they hold israel fully responsible for the repercussions of this dangerous escalation it's israel that's escalated it and as much as as much as you hear this sort of thing um that that is that is said about Israel as, as 
frustrating as it is, it's really important to note the fact that, you know, okay, who's in charge of Hamas? Why do they care so much about instigating more violence in Israel? And and what are the consequences of that going to be? Like, those those are the big questions to ask here, because, you know, you see Israel being under fire from all sides, literally um, under fire. And everyone says that it's Israel's fault. Um, but that's that's key here, and we need to we need to really look at it and 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 really understand what it's going to lead to when we see when we see this this sort of animosity coming from from powers like Hamas. You can see why Benjamin Netanyahu and the Defense Ministry have their hands full this week. Uh, where where can our readers go to to get a good idea of this specific concept you're talking about? The Palestinian violence, but more importantly, what's behind it? Right, and 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 that's the thing. Um, Hamas is a proxy group that is funded, sponsored, directed by Iran. And when you see Hamas having so much control over uh, what the Palestinian uh, efforts are like in Israel, you see who's directing it. And we have we have an excellent article at the Trumpet. It's it's titled "Iran is taking over the Palestinian street." Uh, it it gives just a great overview of of what all of this means when we see Hamas uh, leading this charge in Israel. And and here, here are a couple of quotes from that article. It says Hamas has picked this current fight with Israel and controlled the narrative from the beginning in order to seize control of Palestinian leadership. And as it does, Hamas's paymaster, Iran, becomes the de facto leader of the Palestinians. And it it goes on to say, not only is Iran Israel's greatest external threat to its survival, Iran is now Israel's greatest internal threat as well. And this feeds into so many pivotal Bible prophecies about um, what is going to happen in Jerusalem, in Israel, a lot of the violence that's going to uh, engulf this very important city. And all of this instability, all of this violence, this this division, this uh, Israeli-Palestinian animosity, it really is so pivotal to Bible prophecy. And there's a lot more detail around all of this. So I really do uh, encourage our readers to read this article um, by Mr. Nagdegal. It, it does give you all the details that you need to know in order to understand and contextualize uh, all of this violence erupting in Jerusalem. Iran. I, can I jump in with my hot take on uh, that question? Uh, yeah, good idea. Go ahead. Sure. Of, of, of who's behind it? Barack Obama and the radical left. Like, I think I, I completely agree with everything Rafaro said, but I think there's a very direct connection between what is happening here and I, I've just been writing on this and thinking about this more this week in America in that you look at what's been happening over the last three months and you've had terrorist attacks after terrorist attacks in the West Bank and in these other areas and time and again the uh, you know joe biden has sided with the terrorists and as israel has responded to these attacks america has come out and criticized israel's response and never criticized the terrorist attacks so i think a lot of these terrorists in israel are sitting there thinking the white house they're saying the white house is on our side let's start a war 
Like, I think that is a huge part of why this is happening. You know, that you can tell exactly as Rafaro painted, they're deliberately trying to provoke a fight and they're doing it because they think the White House is on their side. Which, but, you know, they're on Iran's side too. It, it's, uh, it's a sorry state of affairs. The biggest barrage since 2006. That's not insignificant. Yes, and uh, right with what Mr. Palmer said in this article that I just mentioned, <laughs> it quotes Mr. Gerald Flurry, who said that former President Barack Obama's main foreign policy aim was to align America with Iran because America, because Iran's main goal is to bring America down and wipe Judah off the map. And now that foreign policy is back under the Biden administration. So absolutely, this article will give you all the information that you need and link all of those pieces together. Iran is taking over the Palestinian street. Thank you, Mr. Manyepa, for watching the Middle East for us this week and giving us a good sense of what's going on uh, behind those events on the street. Uh, next up, we have Mr. Richard Palmer. He's been watching Europe for us. Uh, give us a rundown of what's been going on in your region, Mr. Palmer. Well, as usual, we've got the weekly updates of uh, protests in France. This time, I think what was most no noteworthy is they were hitting the offices of BlackRock, this uh, top U.S. investment firm, as these protests kind of morph beyond just an anti-Macron pensions protest into this kind of anti-global financial institutions making people poorer around the world type of an issue this is something that you could see more potently spreading to other countries uh you could see that having an impact in the netherlands for example where their coalition is kind of having a they had a bit of a rocky week this week as they put a pause on their very controversial uh farming shutdown policies this issue could now divide the coalition because uh some of the right-wing parties are looking at what's happened in recent dutch elections and thinking if we don't change course we're going to lose all of our voters to these new farmers parties so you've really got that kind of a, an uprising in europe that's going to lead to a new politics and i'll just mention as well uh joshua michels had a really interesting piece on our website about germany restructuring its military leadership that's not something you tend to uh get a whole lot of headlines about but behind the scenes germany's defense minister is being very effective at um, slimming down this kind of top-heavy command structure and making the German military a more responsive, more nimble machine. And you've got a main topic here that looks like it is uh, a small meeting that could barely be larger in its, its scale and its ramifications. Well, I don't know whether I'd call it small. The pictures are pretty dramatic. Um, you know, you had Emmanuel Macron in Tiananmen Square... Um, being photographed and meeting with Xi Jinping and big banquet halls and all of these kind of most iconic places in uh, in China. It's this real charm offensive from Emmanuel Macron uh, as he travels over and meets with Xi Jinping, spending about three days uh, in China. Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, is also in China, uh, though her trip was much more of the small meeting type and uh, certainly didn't get the the same kind of profile as Emmanuel Macron's did. Uh, and it's during this trip, really, I think Emmanuel Macron was doing a couple of things. The first was he was uh, appealing for China to come in and solve Ukraine, uh, to come in and, and sort out everything and to, to reason with Russia and act as an intermediary less maybe overtly publicized was um his attempt to drum up support for uh, french businesses uh 
But I think the and and to, to you know he took a lot of business leaders with him after contracts with China. Uh, but the big takeaway I think is you've got a very you, you, you this is Europe pursuing a very different China policy to the United States. And this break is something that Xi Jinping was very keen to emphasize and expand on. I, you could not imagine the United States going right now and saying, China, we'd like you to intervene with Russia on Ukraine. Can you please try and negotiate with Russia and come up with some, some kind of a peace treaty? Uh, if there is a Chinese brokered peace treaty on Ukraine, it would be regarded as a humiliation for the United States. So for France to come along, you know, they're quite clearly on, on a different side there. Uh, the United States is actively trying to disengage with China. There's laws going through about banning TikTok and things like this and looking for alternative suppliers to, to microchips. And it's not happening fast enough. Uh, and, this is even, and this is even under the Biden administration, which is more pro-China than uh, its predecessor. Absolutely, you know they're of course they're of course in bed with the Chinese, but I think these two countries are so obviously pulling in different directions that there is a pressure on the Biden administration that they at least have to appear to be doing something about China, um, and Europe is going in a different direction to all of that pressure, drawing closer to China. So uh, Emmanuel Macron, he said he wants to relaunch a strategic and global partnership with China. He talked about a shared responsibility for peace and international stability. And uh, then Xi Jinping responded, well, China still sees Europe as an independent pole in a multipolar world and supports its effort to achieve strategic autonomy. Uh, that was at a press conference that had no questions, uh, very Chinese Communist Party style press conference. But you know, he's basically there saying, well, yeah, we, rec we see Europe as independent from America. You're not America's sidekick. We're not going to treat you as America's sidekick. Uh, we want you to have this independent view. So uh, this and this divide is something crucial in Bible prophecy that we have written quite a bit about that you're going to see Europe uh, split with America and uh, or I should say we you kind of publicly split with America. I think like we've talked about before, when you look at what a lot of European leaders are doing or what especially Germany is doing, there is a behind the scenes split already. Um, but a public split with America where they'll side with China and with Russia instead. And so Emmanuel Macron going over to China a few weeks after Roy Schul uh, Olaf Schultz sorry, went to China, uh, you're seeing Europe drawing closer and closer and laying the groundwork for that kind of public split. So with these meetings, both small and large, it's it's leading to this split you're talking about. What what might be more of the end game, or at least the next stage uh, after the uh, such a public split? Well, this is something that Bible prophecy has a lot to a lot to talk about. This uh, you know, that you're going to see this European power turn on the United States. You're going to see a double cross from this European power. And one prophecy that adds some interesting, one Bible passage that adds interesting details to this prophecy that that's discussed a lot in the, in the throughout the Bible is Isaiah chapter 23 that talks about this mart of nations. It's a prophecy that uh, talks about a lot of you know, trade and ocean-going vessels. And it emphasizes that you're going to see a trade relationship grow up between Europe and China. And then you can turn to a host of other prophecies that talk about America being shut out of world trade. And the implication is that Europe and China and Russia as well take this trading alliance and they use it to shut America out of world trade 
to bring down America's economy, to besiege uh, America and cause you know, then that this softens up America for, for then a whole host of even worse uh, damage. So this is what and then you, you know, we can see this building right now. I think it was right around 2010, 2011 that, that Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry first started talking about this Mart of Nations prophecy. It was after that that you saw uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel visit Xi Jinping more than any other world leader outside of Europe, making more overseas trips to China than to any other country uh, place. Again, outside of Europe, people started talking about a special relationship between Germany and China. You're seeing uh, Schultz and now Macron follow in that. And... You know, Macron's trip is all about trade. Olaf Schultz's trip is all about trade. And I mentioned all of those, I mentioned all of these ocean-going vessels, and China is heavily invested in Europe's top ports. You've got the port of Pirasus in Greece. They have a massive chunk of, of Rotterdam. Hamburg was recently in the news as China's been buying up huge parts of that. You've got their Belt and Road Initiative where they're building railway links to Europe. You know, we're watching that economic alliance being built already. And the Bible says, well, you know, they're going to use this economic alliance to turn against the United States. And so when you see France publicly breaking with America and going to China, uh, you know, you're seeing this prophecy come to life before your eyes. The great mart of nations. If you imagine the economic power that is Europe uniting or or, or forming a mart, forming a, a trading block with Asia, there could hardly be a larger trading power on the face of the earth. So week to week, there are plenty of meetings, small and large, plenty of international delegations, plenty of events in the scenes and behind the scenes, and many, 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 many words spoken, plenty of talk about cooperation and bilateral such and such. So when you're trying to figure out which of these is actually important, which of these is moving in, a, in an important direction that's going to affect your life. Trumpet Hour points to Bible prophecies, specific understanding of specific Bible prophecies. Mr. Palmer watches those in Europe, and Jeremiah Jacques watches those in Asia. Jeremiah, what has uh, what have you been guided to uh, to monitor this week in Asia? Yeah, well, of course, the uh, the meeting that Mr. Palmer just mentioned there in in Beijing was a huge one, and then uh, as for Russia, it's been kind of a tough week. There was uh, actually a fire on Wednesday that broke out at the nation's defense ministry headquarters in Moscow. The day before that, one of the country's major propagandists was holding an event in St. Petersburg, and he was assassinated by a bomb disguised as a gift. Uh, Some of his fellow Russians are apparently against the war, so they killed this outspoken Putin ally with a bomb, and it was all captured on video, so a real blow to the, the Z world, you could call it. Um, Then this week, of course, the nation of Finland officially joined NATO. NATO, of course, that's the security alliance that Russia views as its main adversary. So to have the Finnish flag raised now at NATO's headquarters, that really throws cold water on Russia's, you know, expansionist plans. So those are all notable stories. But I think that an even more interesting one this week, especially in light of what Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has recently written about Russia's war, is this story that didn't actually get that much attention. It's about a man named Gleb Karakulov. Karakulov worked for over a decade as a communications officer in Vladimir Putin's elite secretive security service. So he was in 
very intimate, close contact with Putin during that time, setting up secure communications for him, and just working in general to you know, protect the president. Um, and he got to know Putin on a very intimate level that few ever would. But then back in October, Karakulov defected. He fled Russia with his wife and daughter on the grounds that he could not work under someone who he views as a war criminal. Uh, so that was about six months ago that he fled. And then just this week, Karakulov started speaking out. He said he, he feels that the war against Ukraine is just unconscionable and it has to be ended. And he said that if he speaks out, he may help to kind of hasten its end. So Karakulov, he's the highest ranking member of the Russian security services to defect. So that means it's just a, a very rare perspective, a very rare window into Putin's thinking and behavior that he uh, offers. So that is an interesting uh, item that a lot of people probably overlooked as we watched NATO uh, come right up to to the Russian border there with with Finland being added as a member. Uh, but why did you why did you zone in on this as as you, the main story to bring our listeners? Well, I think it's uh, mostly just because of the actual substance of what Karakalov revealed. He uh, he paints this picture of Putin, which. It conforms with the accounts that we've been hearing more and more of this kind of formerly charismatic leader who's now increasingly isolated and deeply worried about threats to his life. But Karakalov actually goes beyond these generalities to give some new specifics. He says that Putin refuses to use the internet or a mobile phone. And he insists on constant access to Russian state TV wherever he goes. So that means Putin actually only hears the pundits who he himself has actually put on TV. You know, so he's taking in great quantities of his own propaganda. Uh, Karakalov also says that since the war broke out, Putin has stopped using airplanes. He'll sometimes send an empty jet from one city to another to make it look like he's flying. But uh, he's actually traveling exclusively now on special armored trains. Um, when he does meet with people, he won't let them stand or sit within several yards of him. We, we've even seen some photos emerge of these comically long tables with Putin sitting at one end and, you know, his uh, interlocutor 20 yards away, something like that. Karakalov also confirmed that Putin has many offices in various Russian cities that have identical interiors. So he sometimes holds televised meetings in St. Petersburg, for example, and tells the world that he's in Moscow or Sochi. And since the offices look identical, um, media can never be sure where he actually is. So that's all just to kind of confuse foreign intelligence and potential domestic enemies as well, just to minimize threats on his life. Then one really interesting detail was that when Putin visited Kazakhstan last October, he ordered Karakulov and the rest of the security crew to get a bomb shelter set up for him, like a nuclear bomb shelter, and to have secure communications established there. So he was, he was afraid that while he was traveling, he would face some kind of a threat to his life, possibly even a nuclear missile strike. So he demanded, you know, ready access to this shelter. Um, so Putin is pathologically afraid for his life. And we've even seen this in his approach to covid for more than three years now. Uh, we've got a clip about this from Mark Bennett, a foreign correspondent for The Times. Here it is. He's very concerned for his own personal safety and security. I mean, we, we could see that with the kind of extraordinary measures the Kremlin took to um, protect him from coronavirus, which are still, according to Karakulov, uh, still, still in place. Um, he said that presidential aides are still taking PCR tests throughout the day. 
that people who want to meet him or need to meet him for up to 15, 20 minutes are still being put in the quarantine for two weeks before they are allowed to do so. With all of this, we, we just get a picture of Vladimir Putin as a man who is deeply fearful about threats to his life. He is a man who clings to this physical life with a terror grip. You know, he, he just wants to take no chances about going to join his heroes, Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great, any sooner than he absolutely has to. So some interesting revelations there about a, a key figure, obviously, in the Ukraine war and, and more broadly. Uh, what, uh, where, where can our listeners look for a little bit more about what led you to this particular item? Yes, I would recommend that they read this article by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. It's actually called The Ukraine War Will Not Start World War III. Uh, the reason why I connected this story about Karakalov to that article is just because, you know, we're learning here that Putin is pathologically afraid for his life. He tenaciously clings to it. Um, and this is very relevant to the war on Ukraine because one big fear that comes up over and over is that this war will go nuclear. Putin will get dead. He'll start lobbing nuclear missiles at Ukraine, and then the U.S. or maybe the U.K. or France will return fire, throw some nuclear weapons back, and before you know it, the unthinkable is happening. Nuclear World War III is underway. So that's been a concern that many have expressed, and, and it's an understandable fear. But from the understanding that we have about Putin's intense fear of dying— I think that we can see that this means the likelihood of him launching a nuclear strike is actually very low. He knows that if he launched such a strike, America would probably not target the Kremlin headquarters or, I don't know, the Winter Palace or some other high-profile target. America would target Putin specifically. Despite his best efforts, U.S. intelligence always knows where he is, and he knows that. And it's also well established that he personally would be the main target in such an event. And he knows all that very well. So I just think that this his personal fear of dying factors heavily into the nuclear equation. And it shows that it's less likely than what many people think. And, and this article that Mr. Fleury wrote, it says, you know, it, this war will not start World War III. That's the, actually the title of it. The Ukraine war will not start World War III. And his reasoning is all based on Bible prophecies, Mr. Fleury's reasoning. Um, these prophecies show that World War III will erupt from a whole different conflict actually originating in the Middle East. And it gives a lot of detail about that. And I would encourage that article for uh, anyone who would like to understand what the scriptures say about how the Third World War will begin. And and I think that with these new revelations, we just have some new kind of auxiliary evidence just showing that that's, that's true. The Ukraine war will not start World War Three. That's on the trumpet.com. You'll also find the prophesied Prince of Russia on the trumpet.com slash literature surprisingly specific connections between specific people, specific figures, not just specific nations, but specific individuals and Bible prophecy there on the trumpet.com slash literature. You're listening to trumpet hour.
Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. Another one of those key developments to to keep an eye on that you might have overlooked uh, comes out of Russia. Jeremiah Jacques has that story. Yes, Russia has just officially named China and India as its key allies on the global stage. This was in a new foreign policy document that was just adopted by President Vladimir Putin a few days ago. It's a 42-page document, and it really calls a lot of specific attention to China and India, calling them, quote, friendly nations, and just emphasizing Russia's aim of deepening ties and coordination with both of them across just a whole range of realms. And it's not hard to see why Russia would start to have this focus. We know that uh, since February 22, 2022, when uh, Russia expanded its attack on Ukraine into the full-scale war, the West had a big plan to try to isolate Russia and, and just kind of cut it off economically, make it a pariah on the world stage. But there was a big problem with that plan, two big problems, actually. And they, of course, were China and India, the world's two most populous nations. They refused to go along with the West plan. They've given steady backing diplomatically, uh, blocking the UN's resolutions to condemn Russia's war. They've also boosted um, trade of all kinds with Russia. So these moves from Russia and China have really thrown a major lifeline to Russia. So it's easy to see why Russia would now name them as its main partners. And really what we're seeing here is uh, quite similar to what happened back in 2014 when Putin's Russia first invaded Ukraine and took Crimea. At that time, China and India did essentially the same thing we're seeing now, just making it clear that they weren't opposed to Putin's expansionism. And they kept doing business as usual with Russia, even increasing business. So it should be no surprise to see this playing out again, essentially the same way. And Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote an article all about this in our May-June issue. Issue, uh, from 2022. It's called Asia Still Stands with Putin. And it talks a lot about this 200 million man army that the Bible says Vladimir Putin and, and Russia will lead very soon. And of course, that's far larger than any army that Russia would ever be able to field on its own. But once you add in China's 1.4 billion people and India's 1.4 billion, it isn't tough at all to get to that number of soldiers. So I just think to, to see China and India right now dramatically increasing their business with Russia and their support of Russia, and to see Russia singling them out as its main new allies, it's really creating the conditions for all of these Asian giants to be grouped together in this Asian alliance. Asia still stands with Putin. Another specific application of specific Bible verses to a specific nation at a fairly specific time. With specific individuals, Asia still stands with Putin at thetrumpet.com. We mentioned Finland's accession to the NATO alliance earlier, a major development, but there's more than that going on in Finland. Richard Palmer. That's right. Finland's Prime Minister, Sanna Marin, who got them to this point of, of being a part of NATO, is out. She was defeated in the country's parliamentary elections taking place over the, the last weekend. The centre-right national coalition came in the first place with 20.8% of the vote. But I think the real news is the performance of a party called the Finns that came in fractionally behind them with 201 the Finns is a uh, huge testament to the staying power of I, what I've kind of termed the fringe right within Europe. Parties that used to be considered beyond the pale, too extreme for ordinary people to vote for or brand new in, in some way. Uh, like so many of these parties, the Finns party, then called True Finns, first kind of rose into the big leagues back 
shortly after the 2008 financial crisis. So this was in Finland's 2011 election. Uh, they went from having five seats in Finland's 200-seat parliament to having 39 seats. And they've stuck around. They're on a similar level this time and actually had their best ever uh, vote. I think it was right around 40 seats this time. In 2015, they entered government. 2017, the party split. And the moderates kind of stayed in government. The more radical faction continued under the name Finns. And it was the more radical faction that actually had this best ever result for them. So in country after country within Europe, we've seen that these kind of new upstart groups that came along uh, after the financial crisis, they're still here. They're doing better than ever in most cases. You've kind of got them in power in, in Italy and in some other countries. And this is a massive trend taking place all across Europe. It's something I wrote on in 2019. European politics are in a death spiral because we saw this happen in the 1930s where these fringe groups that nobody wants to work with have such a huge part of the vote that uh, it's causing real problems, that the right the p parties either have to work with the fringe and normalize them, or they form a left-right coalition and it gets nothing done, and so support for the fringe rises. Finland is facing exactly this decision, and we, we yet, we're yet to see which way the victorious party is going to go. Uh, but in the 1930s, this drove Europe into a dictatorial direction, and you can see that happening again right now. This is something that the Bible prophesies. We talked last time, I think, about Revelation 17 and how it talks about uh, you know, you've got 10 kings, not 10 committees, 10 presidents. Uh, it, you, there's a political revolution coming to Europe, and you can see it in the rise of parties like True Finns. And that article, European Politics Are in a Death Spiral, goes into more details on that. The staying power of the fringe right. I, I appreciate the way you've expressed that. The, that seemed to be a trend, a fad there in Europe uh, for, for a little while. Some people considered it that. But there is something fundamental happening uh, in European politics, and, and your article brings that out. We do keep seeing nations and groups of nations, as we discussed earlier, disconnecting in different ways from the United States diplomatically over the war in Ukraine, over trade, over currency, and this week over oil, Rufaraman Yepa. Absolutely. And, and it started in March when Russia decided that it was going to uh, retaliate to Western countries, uh, imposing a price cap on its seaborne oil exports by uh, lowering its oil production by about 500,000 uh, barrels a day. Saudi Arabia has joined up into that party. Uh, it uh, leads a group called the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries Plus, uh, and it announced that all of them would be uh, joining Russia in placing a cap on the amount of oil that it exports. And uh, immediately after that announcement, oil prices went up. And this is all a simple matter of supply and demand, right? Uh, the, the less oil that is, that is uh, available there, the higher the prices uh, for that oil. And this is something that um, America isn't fond of. Um, for one, Saudi Arabia and all of these countries have been talking about how they are considering trading in their oil in currencies other than the U.S. dollar, something that jeopardizes American interests directly. Secondly, uh, all of this will be a great boon to Russia because the higher the prices are on oil, uh, the longer and the, 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 the more they're able to finance their war on Ukraine. They're, they're able to remain uh, more financially solvent. 
and all of this, Saudi Arabia, all these other nations, uh, Iraq, Kuwait, Kazakhstan, Oman, they would have known how America would have reacted to this. And America hasn't responded well. They're fine with it. They're more than happy to have taken this stance. Um, they, they're going to be imposing these uh, these uh, caps until the end of the year. They have the option to extend it if they wish. Um, but uh, for the foreseeable future, you're going to have uh, 8% higher uh, oil prices in the country. And, and this is something that uh, we've been watching for a long time. Um, in particular, this break between the United States uh, and the rest of the world. Um, this is in the upcoming trumpet issue. We wrote that since the end of World War II, the United States has relied on partnership with Saudi Arabia to keep the peace in the Middle East and keep Western economies oil supply secure. A break between these nations could have a ripple effect on America's relations with the rest of the Middle East. And we've been watching this for a long time. This break is prophesied between America and these Middle Eastern nations. And I suggest looking into uh, our booklet, The King of the South, for more information on what all of this looks like. Finally, we come back to Anglo-America Andrew Miller, what do we have going on in in uh, this region that we need to keep an eye on? Well, it's been a couple of weeks since a bank has collapsed, but that definitely doesn't mean that the banking crisis is over. Uh, actually, oh, J.P. Morgan Chase has revealed that over the past year, uh, the banking industry in America has lost a total of about $1 trillion in deposits. Uh, if you laid $1 trillion end-to-end, it would stretch from where I'm sitting right now to the heart of the sun. So a tremendous amount of money, and since some big banks have actually made money during this crisis that means the small to medium-sized banks have actually lost more than a trillion dollars and so jp morgan chase ceo um jamie dimon released his annual (laughs) um his basically his annual summary of america's financial statement and uh, he also says that this banking crisis is going to um affect America for years to come. Because the letter, I don't have a clip from him, but here's a a Fox News analyst uh, summarizing in about 20 seconds what uh, Jamie Dimon's letter says. Wall Street always takes special note of this letter from Jamie Dimon. He says the banking crisis isn't over following last month's collapse of Silicon Valley and signature banks. In his annual letter to shareholders, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase wrote, the current crisis is not yet over, and even when it is behind us, there will be repercussions from it for years to come. The current crisis is not yet over. Keep watching the banking system in America and look at our financial 9-11 was prophesied. That's on thetrumpet.com. Our financial 9-11 was prophesied. Well, that is this week's Trumpet Hour Week in Review. Thanks for listening. Email us your thoughts on the program at letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Rufara Manyepa, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. <laughs>